So we're in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to pick it up today. I mean, we left off, really, we kind of spent two weeks. The first week, we really kind of covered the first handful of verses up to verse 14. And then we went through the book of Revelation last week. So if you are the kind that's ever been freaked out by that book or whatever, well, then my suggestion is just get the... Uh, download the DVD or, the, well, however you do that, MP3, I guess is what it is, um, and just uh, take a peruse through it. It's obviously not a super in-depth thing because we had 22 chapters to cover in less than an hour, so you can imagine that that was a whole lot of fun. Okay, so <clears throat> pick it up with me in verse 15 then. That's where we left off. Let me read this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore. If they say to you, look, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then the tribes of the earth, all the tribes of the earth, will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with the sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know its summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, know that it is near, or even he is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Well, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But on the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, then two men will be in the field and one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this. If the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, well, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Well, who then? is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master has delayed his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, The master of that servant will come in a day when he's not looking for him and in an hour when he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Will you pray with me, please? God, today, here in this room, 
Father, we approach your throne of grace. We know that we've had a high priest who was tempted in every way, yet without sin, and therefore able to sympathize with our weaknesses. But is more than just our high priest, but also our perfect propitiation, our payment for our sins. And he's also our Lord and our Master. And the reason we were created, for we read in Colossians that by him and for him all things were created. So, we invite you here. We invite you here, Lord, to, be, to rule and to reign in our hearts. To cause your scripture to burst open and flourish before us. We know this is a lot of text, but keep our brains from exploding. Give us a voracious spiritual stomach to feast upon your word today. And feast in such a way that we all get it. You know where each of us are. Overcome every language barrier, every cultural barrier, any barrier, and every barrier that we would find ourselves in your arms where we belong. May your word, Lord, impact us, captivate us, capture us, commandeer our attention now, we pray. Lord, let this time be perfect time spent, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Now let's put things into perspective here. And I'm kind of sitting up here not just because it's like, well, we have a stage for one more week, so it's kind of nice to do, but I'm trying to kind of picture what it would be like for Jesus. See, Jesus went off on the religious leaders. Chapter 22, that was yesterday in Jesus' ministry. That was a Tuesday of the Passion Week. He was challenged by all the religious leaders. Well, as he was, ultimately he goes off on them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them eight times hypocrites. And he tells them that they are marked off at this point because of their behavior, because of the refusal of him, that they're sons of hell. He tells them that though they go and travel the world to make proselytes, he said, yet you make them, when you find one, you make them more a son of hell than you are yourself. And he says, you not only forbid the way for others to, he says, you not only not enter, but also you keep others from coming too. So you will receive the greater condemnation. You do not want to be called a hypocrite by Jesus in chapter 23. At which, the end of which ends with this huge sonata of tears with Christ, if you will, when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to, how long I've wanted to gather you. He says, Look at how your house is laid to you, best desolate. How long I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers his chicks under her wing. But you just were not willing. Understand, this is not a pleasant experience for Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross was the culmination of a life of dying to self. Because if Jesus had sinned once, he wouldn't have been allowed to be, he wouldn't have qualified as the sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus is seeing something. He is seeing people crying out, Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what he sees is different from what man sees. Man sees an external king. They see a king in Jesus and they see the Passover, Pesach, and they say, this is the perfect time, the celebration of freedom. This is the perfect time to have him be king. But this, what heaven sees as a king is very different from the way that man saw this king. Because heaven looks at the perspective of eternity. And from heaven's perspective, Jesus conquering the, Rome, the Romans would not in any way remove the inherent problem of every one of us. That is an eternal problem, and that is the guilt of our sin. Can you imagine? Jesus has come to rescue us from the greatest thing. It's like we're dying of cancer, but we have a sliver. And all we want is God to remove the sliver. And what heaven sees is radically different from what man sees. So at which time then his disciples start to try to sort of cheer him up, if you will. Look at the beautiful temple. How beautiful this building is. Look at how the great donations that have been given. Look at how beautiful this place is. And Jesus looks at me and says, so that's what you see. But that's not what I see. He says, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. He knows. 
he knows what heaven sees, heaven sees is something so much more eternal. And what man sees is just the moment. Now, we recognize this because when Samuel was sent to anoint a king to replace this, the king Saul in the book of 1 Samuel. And he brings and he's brought to the house of Jesse, who is a Bethlehemite. He's a Judean. He's from the tribe of Judah. He has eight kids. And of the eight children, he brings in seven, keeps the youngest outside to watch the sheep. And as Samuel looks, he sees the older sons and they're strapping and they're good looking. And as they are, Samuel thinks, well, surely it must be this guy. Look at this guy. But God says, Samuel, you're not seeing things the way I do. It says, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Literally in the Hebrew, levav, the inside. And I recognize heaven's view on everything seems to be very radically different from, it does, from the way the world sees things. Last week when we looked at the book of Revelation, let me remind you again, it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. And it is the revelation of excellence. Ah, thank you. That just blesses me to hear you say that. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It tells us when there was no one worthy to take the scroll, that John falls apart and has a meltdown. That's Revelation 4 and 5, by the way, in case you want to check on that. And so one of the elders says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed and is worthy to take the scroll. What heaven saw was the conquering king of beasts, the lion. But when John looks, he sees the lamb, a slaughtered lamb at that. Very, very, very different the way that they saw things. As Jesus starts to talk about this, and Jesus goes and he sits up on a high hill, and he sits there at the Mount of Olives, the place he will ascend from, if you will, his disciples come to him privately. And they sit and they start to ask. Well, could you fill us in on this? Because understand, this is a mind blow. As much as Jesus had told them that he was going to die, and here they were expecting him to take over the kingdom, imagine what it's like for Jesus to say the temple's about to be destroyed, because they saw it as an eternal building as well. They looked at this building that had taken over 50 years, at this point, 52 to 54 years to build, in its remodel from Herod's time. And he had taken something that was roughly 400 square feet and remodeled it to something 1.2 million square feet. That's a big remodel. It's now seven stories tall. It's beautiful and it's gleaming and it's seen from all sides. And you can imagine them going, I don't get it. I don't understand how this temple could be taken down. I thought you came here to rescue us. But man's not seeing the way that God sees. So with that, they ask these questions. And take a look at it again in Matthew 24, verse 3. So they ask, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They give three questions there. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus proceeds to answer those. But again, from heaven's perspective. And it's interesting because, see, what man's starting to look at is the way that he sees civilization, but what God's looking at is the church. Now, don't miss this, because the way that man is seeing things, we're looking at society and we're seeing society fall apart, and we're looking at things and we're blaming it on cows for global warming, and we're blaming it on, you know, on whatever the thing is we want to blame it on. But yet in all of that, God recognizes the only thing that's actually keeping this world from falling apart is the church. Because we're the only ones that are called to be the light of the world. We're the only ones that are called the light of the world. And so recognize, in all of that, Jesus starts running out this comparison that would be easy to miss. He tells us this. He says, The many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and deceive many. That's verse 5. And then he says, you'll hear in verse 6, of wars and rumors of wars. And he'll start to speak about kingdom against kingdom. And understand, there's our first comparison. What the world will see is a kingdom against another kingdom. What they'll see is it seems like the end of world peace. But what the, what the Lord is seeing is the church. And in the church, he's seeing kingdom against kingdom. And he's seeing an end of world peace again. Because what he's seeing is the church surrender itself to the ways of the world. Instead of impacting the world and influencing the world, it's starting to imitate it instead. And then Jesus starts to tell us, well, you'll start to see these things as well. You'll start to see hunger and rampant disease. Interesting, by the way, because in Amos chapter 8, 11, God speaks about famine, but he doesn't talk about a famine of food or of water. He says it's a famine of the word of God. 
And when he speaks about that of, of diseases and that of those that are contagious and those that spread, it's interesting because in 2 Timothy 2.16, Paul told Timothy as he was about to die himself, shun profane and idle babblings, for they increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer, literally like gangrene. And and what Jesus sees, as he sees his church, no longer embracing the simple gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, no longer clinging to the power of his word and believing that God's word is inerrant and having God's people be equipped with his word, but instead now people are turning to cool slogans. They're turning to some form of uh, idolatry of wisdom and philosophy of this world. And they stop trusting the things of God. Because it's just the same thing that they'll see out there epidemically, but with diseases on the outward side. In the same way that when God spoke about death in the book of Genesis, when he said, on the day you eat of it, mutamut, you'll surely, literally, you'll die dying, or to die, die. But on that day, we know they don't cash in their bodies, but they lost the relationship between them and God that they had prior And what man saw on the outside when Adam would die over 900 years after his initial creation, God had already seen internally from the moment they sinned. So then Jesus starts to walk through this. And again, he's asking, he's answering the questions, when will these things be? When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he starts to talk about the end of the age. And he talks about a time called the Great Tribulation. It's not great because we're like, wow, that's great. Wouldn't that be great? It's great from the term mega, like, in other words, the gigantic or the huge, or we might even say the mega tribulation. Now, tribulation thesis just means really bad time. So Jesus says there's a really, really bad time coming, for which Jesus will tell us here will be worse than anything the world has ever seen or will ever see. Which is interesting because some have tried to make this whole text appear as if it happened at the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. when the, uh, At the time prior to becoming emperor, at that time, Commander Titus brings in three different legions. I believe it's the 5th, the 10th, and the 12th surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And one drunken soldier throws a fiery torch or a pitch, if you will, into the temple where everyone had fled. Well, the temple was limestone. The inside of it was wood covered in gold. Well, the wood, of course, catches fire. The limestone, as you may be aware of, is very wet, so it starts to evaporate and crumble to powder. But the gold starts to seep because there was no mortar ever used in the temple. So in a drunken rage, these soldiers, as these stones are crumbling, one, by the way, would be over 110 tons. But as they're crumbling, start to grab bars and pry them over and to grab the liquid gold that was melting through the, through the pores and through the cracks, just like Jesus had promised. But what Jesus was seeing was so much more than just the destruction of a temple. See, as Jesus starts to tell us about all of this, from heaven's perspective, this is God reclaiming his land. But from the world's perspective, it's the end of the world as they know it. That's a very different view. So in this, he starts to answer that. And in verse 15, look at it with me. He says, when you see this abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, whoa, stop. If you're new to scripture, this is probably overwhelming. Now look, please understand, it isn't like every week we like to talk about the end of the world. We do love to talk about the Lord's coming because he's told us at the end of this how important that is. But he did tell us that there is going to be this event that he tells us here called the abomination. Abomination is something so horrible it makes you nauseous. Of desolation, which means it's something so horrible it brings about great destruction. That would be the idea. Now before I develop that, I want to take this backwards for just a moment. Go to the end verses so we can get a context for everything. Look at our last verses because he talks about two kinds of servants. He tells us this in verse 45. Are you there? Do you see that? In verse 45, it tells us, who then is a faithful and wise servant? That's one kind of servant we have here. Faithful, that means he's dependable, he's trustworthy, and wise. What we read about is that he is actually first over dishing out food to God's most precious possession, 
for God, the greatest thing is not his property. The greatest thing is not the heavens. The greatest thing is you. You are God's most precious, most precious thing. And so when someone is responsible, in essence, for keeping them refreshed and fed, he tells us by the end of this, in verse 47, such a wise and faithful one will be ruled over all of his goods, not just that which he obviously holds dearest. So there is those that will be faithful and wise. What do they do that makes them faithful and wise? According to verse 46, they watch. Do you see that? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Doing what? Watch, he tells us. Now, the word watch, for what it's worth, is the word grechorechol. We get the word Gregorian from it. If you're familiar with, for instance, like Gregorian chants. The Gregorians, if you will, were those who were, in essence, wanting to watch. They wanted to be alert. The word, in its simplest sense, means to be alert and attentive and constantly on your guard, if you will. He says, such an individual, by the way, in verse 47, he'll make him rule over all his goods. Now, don't miss this. He does not say he will promote him to a political position of oligarchy. Because this isn't just a simple politic. This is a family. And he's not promoting him just to be a ruler over more cities here. He's promoting him to take care of his family with him. Because we are not being recruited to work for God. We are being adopted to love him. So there is such an individual. But look at the other side of it. In verse 48, he tells us there's an evil servant. And the evil servant says in his heart, my master is delayed in coming. He says that in his heart. None of us can see that, but God who sees the inside, that's what God sees. What does the world see? Verse 49. He begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. Did you notice the two things that he'll be known for? First, is literally the word is to thump, to pick on, to bully. He will be known for his outspoken antagonism against Christians. And the second, servants of God. And the second is he'll be known as the guy that parties with the party peeps. That's what he'll be known for. Now let me ask you, do you know people that call themselves Christians that are like this today? Do you know quote-unquote ministries that are like that today, where the whole thing is we're going to look as much like the world as we can, and those other stupid, closed-minded, legalist, fundamentalist Christians, they're our problem. As if really the issue needs to be that the problem is people who believe in God's, God's word and people who follow him and seek to be completely surrendered to him. Could you believe that? And he tells us, such an individual, by the way, here, and God, again, sees the heart that says, I have no interest in his coming, versus... The outside, where the world, what the world just sees is such antagonism against Christians and a person who's willing to get wasted with the wasters. What it tells us is, as the master of, will come, notice that in verse 50, he's still the master of that servant, will come on a day when he's not looking and an hour that he's not aware of, and he will cut him in two and assign him a portion with the hypocrites. Please don't miss this. Because what the world will see is a man cut in two but if we're going to be honest, God has seen him cut in two for a long time. Whereas lips may say really nice things in church. But the rest of him has no interest in God's coming because they're too busy delving into the things of this world. And the reason I say that is the way that this ends is either with great honor or great horror. And you've got to pick your side. So as we walk through this text, and it'll be fairly quick, I want to warn you, I'd like to tell you that God really wants us today to crave his return. And what he's going to make clear is it could happen at any minute. It could happen here. While we're here, and the longer I talk, the more likely it is. You'd say, well, why did God leave the other the rest of the church, if the, if the Lord knew he was going to come back or if the Father even knew that, that Jesus was going to come back, let's say, in 2006, and I'm not saying he's coming back today. I'm saying, wouldn't it be nice? Why did he leave every generation in anticipation that he would come? Because what that does to the church is it stuns it, if you will, it 
defibrillates it back into action and tells us the time is short and that we should be about God's business. Because if we're just going to sort of lax around and try to think somehow that somewhere down the line we're going to wake up one day and go, wow, I should probably get on this. You can't get time back that you lose. And what we're told is to redeem the time because the days are evil. You know, a couple days ago, we bought a one-way ticket to Glasgow for our oldest. And it's still sinking in for both my wife and I. That we have a girl that may head out to Glasgow. She's, by the way, God, praise God, she's serving at a, a ministry there. It involves music and children. I, you couldn't, I couldn't have written something like this. But there's a reality that she may get on that train and we'll see her for visits from that point forward. We don't know. Forgive the drama, of course. It's still fresh for us. But I look back at time that I can't get back. And there are days, you know, where we could have done something special or whatever and we kind of chilled or laxed instead. But when the Lord comes back, it's not like we can get that time back either. It isn't like we can go, boy, I really wish that I had gotten one more thing or gotten the new iPhone or made sure that I really wish that, to be honest, the only thing that's really going to matter is I really wish that I had spent time with people that needed to hear about them. So go back now on our text. Let's walk through this. And though it seems like a lot of text, it really does open and unpack rather simply. This particular thing, this Abomination of Desolation is written roughly 600 years before Jesus came. Really, in all, in all honesty. As it was, Daniel says this, that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, there is an individual who will rise up, a political leader who will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Halfway through that seven-year period, he will openly defile the sanctuary. And at that time, he will commit what is called the abomination, which causes desolation. Daniel introduced us to that term that is being quoted here in Matthew. What it tells us is, at that halfway part, three and a half years, which is, by the way, called by three different things, time, times, and half a time, 42 months, or, as we'll see it here as well, 1,260 days. In Revelation 11, chapters, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that at that second three-and-a-half-year period, he will trample the holy city for 42 months. The Israelites, in Revelation chapter 12, will flee into the wilderness to a place prepared by God for them for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, God makes clear where that place is. He's been preparing us for a while for it. In Psalm 60, verse 9, he speaks about the place of Edom. Edom today, by the way, is the area of southern Jordan. In Isaiah 63, 1, he calls the place Bozrah. In Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 13, he calls the place Selah, which means rock. Interesting, because the Greek word for rock is Petra. And there was a place in southern Jordan called Petra. In Daniel 11, it tells us that though this political leader that we will know as the Antichrist, which by the way means instead of or against Christ, will wage war in Israel, but the people who will escape him will be the people of Jordan. It tells us that is Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That is in essence the majority of the land of Jordan today. And if we're reading the book of Revelation right, the people of Israel will flee without looking back, and they will hightail it to the hills. Which, by the way, is interesting, because there's no place in Israel that is higher than 7,300 feet, and that's, of course, the top of Mount Hermon. 
And yet you can almost double that for the land that surrounds in Jordan. And the people will fly, flee, if you will, into this crevice, which we read then the enemy will come like a flood. Now, whether that is that he'll literally try to take water and divert a river, which is fairly likely, because I remind you, this place is an inlet then. It tells us that God will actually cause an earthquake to happen to swallow up the water. And as fantastical as it sounds, I guarantee you one day we will not have to bend anything. We'll go, wow, it's pretty much exactly like God said it. It's exactly like God said it. So in light of that information, he tells us this in verse 15. So when you see that abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, look at the end of verse 15. Don't miss that. Know that I'm not making this up. It says, whoever reads, let him understand. Do you know what that tells me? That Matthew seemed to have a clue that someone is going to read this and it will be appropriate time-wise, chronologically, to someone reading this, not just to Matthew at the time. And he goes, you guys need to recognize as readers. Those in Judea, get up to high ground, flee to the mountains. Him on the housetop, don't take anything. Those are in the field, don't go even go back to get your clothes. If you're pregnant, man, that's going to be a bummer for you because you don't want to be running with a baby during that time. And your flight, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Now, that's a weird one. Isn't it interesting that God uses the term flight? Now, over 150 years ago, think about what that would have thought, we would have thought that meant. We would have used that in a more broad sense of journey. But today, flight means something. You know what flight means today? Flight means flight. How hard is that? Was that a rough one? Here's the weird part, is that there is a law in regards to not breaking the Sabbath that you cannot go more than a Sabbath day's journey. For instance, the distance between Jerusalem and where Jesus is at the moment, at the Mount of Olives. That's for what it's worth, 2,000 cubits, which is in essence 1,000 meters, or if you will, 3,000 feet. So hopping on a plane might be really rough. Hey, you're in Jerusalem, by the way, and you want to try to fly out at Tel Aviv? It's a bit of a rough thing because they kind of shut those things down during the Sabbath. He says, there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. And it says, nor ever shall it be. And it's important to recognize this time is going to be worse than anything that's ever been seen. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was rough, but it was nothing compared to what we've even seen with the world wars today. And that's nothing compared to this tribulation. This prophecy does not culminate at the destruction of the temple. This prophecy culminates, as the disciples asked, at the end of the age. So it says, unless those days were shortened, no one would have made it through. And if people say that, if anyone says, there he is, don't listen to them. They're false prophets. And what they're going to say is, well, look at Jesus just showed up. And what Matthew makes clear, Jesus teaching us here, what Jesus makes clear, is that when the Lord comes back, you will not miss him. As lightning flashes from one end of heaven to the other, even if you have your curtains closed and your eyelids closed, can't you see it through your eyelids? When Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know it. So if someone were to say, oh no, Jesus came, but he went into the inner room, which by the way, for what it's worth, the J-dubs did say about the time of the First World War that he was coming and that he did come, but we weren't ready, so he went into the inner room. The exact thing that Jesus told us not to believe. If they had said he showed up at McDonald's, at least it would have been harder to disprove it from Scripture. But they picked the one thing that if we just read Matthew 24 and go, oh, it tells me here not to believe you if you say that. What do I do? should be pretty simple. Or in the desert, there's a race car driver, lo and behold, from France, who somehow decided he was Jesus, and he wants to lead a bunch of people into the desert. Hey, I'm going to be in the desert. Come find me. Like Jesus, hide and seek. Can I just say this? When Jesus comes, no one's going to doubt it. When he ascended in Acts chapter 1, and they're staring into sky, which tells us, by the way, Jesus didn't just evaporate in front of them, because why would they stare up? If Jesus, if you evaporated in front of me, I'm not going to be looking up. I'm going to be looking around to figure out what happened to you. But if Jesus literally, as we read, literally ascended in front of them, and they're watching him, they're going to be staring up as he ascends. And then the angels say, why do you stand staring up into the sky, into the heavens, this same Jesus which tells me there are going to be others that aren't going to be the same Jesus. The same Jesus who you saw come up will return in the same manner in which you saw him go. Literally, physically, obviously, 
pretty simple. So he goes to look at what you have is this. Because the church isn't pointing people to Jesus, false prophets will happily do so. Don't miss this. If you don't show up for work, and I mean in the sense that the family business of what Christ calls you to, an unbeliever will gladly take your place. But an unbeliever isn't going to do what you do. So what happens is we tell people you can't use the name of Jesus. But unbelievers don't have a problem using the name of Jesus. They just have to stub their toe or hurt themselves. Have you noticed that? We don't want to preach because, after all, that might offend people. But, boy, I get preached at all the time. And whether that's because of some kind of, you know, and I'm not trying to diss these things. The whole point is just because we stop preaching doesn't mean everyone else stops preaching. And whether that's about recycling or about some form of global crisis or whether that's about the elections on both sides of the pond, the bottom line is everybody's preaching something except Christians. What's wrong with us? We have the most important news. We have the only good news that has an eternal perspective to it in the entire universe. Why in the world aren't we talking? Because we've been listening to the wrong coach. By the way, if you want to submit yourself to the opponent's coach, you can't expect him to give you directions on how to win. So, he says, so look at here's the deal. If you've got people pointing in all these directions, the only earthly hope is Christians. And any other earthly hope is a false hope. So he, he'll try to even deceive if elect, even if possible, the, the elect. Well, how would he do that? Well, all the elect have to do is not know the word. How many people have followed the J-dubs who, who, by the way, have already said, well, there he is in the inner room. That would have been it for me. But look at what it says, verses 26 to 29. So if they say there he's in the desert, don't go. If he says in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles, or if you will, the scavenger birds, will be gathered together. Now, from an outside appearance, this is a pretty gross image. It's a dead body that things that feast on it feast on. You get that, right? Well, what did Jesus just talk about? False prophets. Do you see the difference? A worldly perspective, you watch a dead body and things that eat dead bodies, eat it, feast on it. And what God saw is the same thing. Only what he saw was with his church. The church that's supposed to be vibrant and alive, that's supposed to be the light of the world now, is dead. How do you, how do you make a church dead? All you need to do is decapitate it. Well, how do you decapitate the church? Well, let me ask you, what's the head of the church? Jesus. You remove Jesus from the church, you've decapitated the body, it's going to be a dead body quite soon. And when the body is dead, the vultures will gather. And what the world sees is carnage everywhere as they see through this tribulation. Dead bodies everywhere. But what heaven sees is the dead body that's really causing the problem, which is the church that's supposed to be vibrant. has decided to lay down and die. So from there he says then, the Son of Man will appear in heaven and everyone's going to cry over it. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. That means every gener- every race, every species, if you will, of people, I can say it that way, all nationalities will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But don't miss verse 31. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of what? You tell me, from one end of what? Heaven to the other. So let me ask you, where are his elect while this is happening? Well, they must be in heaven if that's where he's got to gather them. They can't be on earth if he's got to go to heaven to get them. He's going to gather his elect from heaven because that's where they are. And I'm, by the way, as much as I've seen lots of action films, I'm much happier to actually sit in a box seat and watch it from a distance than to jump in and get hit by the car in the car chase. So please hear me in this. They're asking what will be the sign of the coming, but here's the weird part. As he starts to speak about all of this, he starts to speak about it in a very heavy way. Look at verse 29, because we jumped over it for just for a moment. Where the carcass is there, the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation, those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its what? Light. If the sun is darkened, what is it not giving? Light. The sun is darkened, so the sun is not giving what? Right. Thank you. And the moon is not giving its light. And the stars fall from heaven. So guess what the stars aren't giving you? 
Light. So guess what? From a world's perspective, what are we missing? Light. And what do you think God, what do you think God sees? The dead body that's supposed to be the light of the world. So the world says, where's all the light? And you can see God going, where's all the light? People say, oh, that's a dark place. Well, you're near Camden. You're in Camden. That's a dark place. Hey, if I'm the light of the world and you're the light of the world, how can any place be dark around us? Darkness, according to John 1, will never overcome light. Darkness is only the absence of it. So you know when it's dark? When you're not there. But didn't David say in Psalm 139, even darkness is light to you. There's no place God goes and goes, ooh, it's dark around here. This is scary. There's no place God does that because every place Jesus walks is light because he's, he's light. And if that be the case, I can see why God's comparing the two here. Now, these are literal events on both sides. So as we wrap this around to our last couple of points, don't miss this because the idea is every single element that we see in all of this is going to lead you to one of two places. So learn this example or this parable from the fig tree. When the branch is ready and it's become tender and it's put forth leaves, notice it doesn't say you notice that the fruit is near. But he says that you notice that the summer is near. Do you see that in verse 32? Why is that important? Because fig trees are fairly unique in the fact that they bud and they bring forth leaves much earlier than they do the fruit. They actually produce their leaves and their buds, if you will, in the spring. But they produce their fruit in the fall or at the end of summer. And I find that interesting. Because when you see all of these things, before you see, when you start to see these elements, it tells you a season is coming. And in that same way, when you start to see all of these crazy events, a season is coming. But at the end of that season is fruit. And there's the good news. Why does God let people go through this time of great trial? Why doesn't he have to let us go through it? Because we've already made our choice. But there are those who have yet to make that choice. And to be honest, for some of us, we would never have come had it not been for the hard times that came in our life to challenge us first. Nonetheless, verse 34. And by the way, verse 33, it's debated on whether it's, it is near or he is near. But in either case, I'm, uh, both are good news. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Which generation? Well, some have said a generation could be a season of time, could be a group of people like an ethnos, but the word genios is not the word ethnos, like a race of people. It means a group, a specific grouping. Well, some have said, well, it'll have to be when the nation Israel becomes a nation. So you can imagine what happened when Israel became a nation in the 1940s. So they said, well, how long is a generation? Well, it seemed like a generation died off in the 40 years in the wilderness. So in the 1980s, Christians were going mental about Jesus coming. You know what the crazy thing was? His people say, well, look at what happened as a result of that. People were disenchanted and disappointed when he didn't. But you realize when people believed Jesus was coming, the church was active. And more people got saved in the 80s than they did actually for the entire century before. And that's including all of the Great Awakenings. People don't like to talk about that. But when the church expected Jesus to come, the church got busy. Interesting for what it's worth. And he tells us here that this generation won't pass. Well, one thing's for sure. The generation that sees the tribulation will see the end of this. That we can be confident of. Heaven and earth will pass away. That, by the way, is temporary. But my word, it will not pass away. And then he starts to bring us to this sign of his coming. And as he starts to move to the sign of his coming, we start to realize Jesus changes gears a whole lot. Because he went from all of these things of great certainty to something you just don't know when. So he says, the day of the hour, no one knows. If someone tells you they know the day that Jesus is coming, that's the one day that we could be pretty confident he's not coming. Because he says, no one will know that day. I remember Tay and I, when we were younger, we were like, let's just not really expect him today in hopes that he would show up. But he does tell us this. It's like the days of Noah. And for what it's worth, in Genesis 6-5, it's important to note, Genesis 6-5, God tells us that every intent of the thought of the hearts of man were continually evil all the time. Do you realize that? 
In other words, man had so polluted and corrupted himself that he'd gotten to this point where there was no way he'd ever say yes to God. God says, it's going to be like that. He goes, but it's more than just that. He goes, really, to be honest, though, by the way, when God had Noah make this giant boat, this giant ship, it took him over 100 years. And I remind you, until that time, water had never fallen from the sky. Now, could you imagine that here in London? There was a time when water didn't fall from the sky. So when Noah starts to tell people water's going to fall from the sky, it must have sounded as crazy as all the things we say about the end of the world. But you know what? Everything we say doesn't sound as crazy anymore. A cashless society, one world leader, one world government, a revived Roman Empire, or if you will, a revived Roman or European Union. Wow, those things really don't sound that weird anymore, do they? Not being able to buy or sell without a mark? That doesn't sound that weird. That's a cashless society. That stuff, imagine how weird that sounded 50 years ago. 50 years ago, believe it or not, we didn't even have microwaves. I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? And the reason I say that is they ate and they drank, they worked and were married. Days went around as ordinary days. And what it tells us in the simplest point is he will arrive on an ordinary day and make it anything but ordinary. Isn't that what my God does? He has this habit, even today, of doing little installments in smaller ways. But I find it interesting. God seems to work in threes. And the reason I say that is, is the first time God came, he came to rescue. That's the die on the cross. The second time, God will come to remove And that's what Jesus is speaking of here, the rapture. And third, God will come in retribution. Now, with that in mind, he tells us this. When the flood came, no one saw it coming. I don't even know if Noah really saw it coming. But God said, look, I'm not going to make it rain until you get in that thing and I seal it up. Until that thing is sealed up, I am not going to risk you on this. And it didn't even rain right away once it was sealed. Then here it tells us two men will be in the field, one will be gone. Two women will be spinning, if you will, or grinding at the mill, which tells us work is going on like normal, even in the midst of all these horrible times. Seriously, you don't know when I'm coming. And if you don't know when I'm coming, what do you do? Well, it all depends. And that takes us to our last verses to close this out. If you don't know when I'm coming, it all depends on whether you want me to come or not. Because if you really don't want me to come, you'll just kind of hope I don't during your time, and you kind of just live life. Isn't that kind of the way that works? But if you really do want me to come, you'll be excited. And so what will happen is things get a little crazy, and that's not so bad. As long as Dad's coming, as long as the person you love is coming, everything's different. You know, it's like hours, well, minutes seem like hours when you're waiting for somebody and they haven't come yet. And then you find a train's delayed, and it's like, are you kidding me? Not that train. That's an important train. I need that person. And you wait and your heart races. Or if they're driving and you hear a car door close outside, your heart starts to jump from them. And then you run to the window, but then you try to look cool. If, they are, if it is, let me I was just looking. That's one side. You're watching because you're wanting. On the other side, if it's someone you don't want, like for instance, kids are having a house party, there might be a little bit of watching, but there's a different reason for it. They really don't want dad to show up because if that's the case, then things are going to get really ugly. And if that's the case, you realize sooner or later you're just going to get caught up in the party and you don't even care. And isn't that what he tells us? There's going to be two people that are going to call themselves servants of God here. But notice they're all still called servants. That's the odd thing. To some, clearly, are playing the role because he calls them hypocrites, which means actors, posers. So there are these posers. And these posers, by the way, oh, they're playing it up. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm deacon this and bishop this and pope this and whatever. I mean, I'm, I've got my role. I've got my tag. I must be a, a sheriff because look at my badge. And, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously I'm ordained by somebody, so it doesn't really matter who because as long as I'm ordained, I can say I am. But the moment they start going after Christians who, who are actually excited about his return, what they're saying is, you're ruining the party. 
she realized we're here to have a good time and we really don't want him to show up because really this is the most important moment. And every moment, you realize, think of it this way. When you're waiting for the person you love, every moment's like an eternity. But your eternity has an end to it. And that eternity that has an end will be vanquished by something so good. But for the person who's living for the moment, this is as good as it gets. And then they do have eternity that has no end. And there's no good in it. And it's not time to go dis the church and it's not time to go and pick on Christians and it's not the time to go out and try to blend in with a world that's basically, in essence, buying your ticket to the Titanic and trying to make sure that you just go and go down with everyone else. Truth be told, the Lord is coming back not because he's coming back just to, to go gunslinging. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come to receive you to myself, that where I am, you'll be also. Now understand what Jesus is doing is preparing a place we get to be forever because all he can't wait to be with us because all he really wants is to be with us. And it tells us this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud command, with the trumpet call of God, the voice of the archangel. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Won't that be a fun thing to see? And then after that, we who are alive and still remain will be caught up together. That word there is the word we get the word in the Latin is the word rapturas. It's where we get the word rapture from. And it says that we who are alive and still remain will be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. And then he says, and therefore we will forever be with him. Encourage each other with these words. Do those words encourage you? Because what if you were to come today? Well, why hasn't he come yet? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that it says, The Lord is not slack as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The reason why the Lord hasn't come back yet is because he wants you to say yes to him first. And the Lord knows that there will be a point, like in the day of Noah, where, where those who would say yes before the hard times really hit, that everyone who would say yes will have said yes, and the only thing that's left is allowed a time to come where the hard times will bring others to him. But he's not going to bring that until it's necessary. I've learned this. If God can steer you with a feather, he doesn't have to use a sledge. Aren't you thankful? He never uses excessive force. And if God never uses excessive force and he has to use force, that tells me the problem's not him. But he is coming. He goes, can I tell you something special? Like, can I tell you a secret? We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, quicker than a blink. It'll be like, and it'll all be different. And all the things that we've chased after with all of our vehemence will be gone before us. And we'll realize the only thing that's left is people. And to be honest, if God were to say, pick three things you want with you in heaven, I wouldn't even pick my old Jeep that I really liked. My three things have names. Sorry, you guys. It's my family. That's what goes first. But prayerfully, someone else will pick you, but that's not the way it works anyway, so you're good. The Lord would say, if the Father were to say to the Son, to Jesus, if you could take anything with you, what would you take? Don't you realize your face is there? Your name is there? That's what he really wants. So let me ask you this as we go to prayer now. What are you living for? And what are you really living for? What's really important to you? Do you not want the Lord to come back because the really important things really are temporary? And you know that you don't want those things to expire? It's like that thing you saved in your fridge that you just can't wait to eat and by the time you get to it, it's expired and then you have like this meltdown because you've really been dreaming of it. I guarantee you this. When the Lord comes, it's just not going to matter anymore. Because the only thing He wants is you. As we go to prayer, we need to make a choice today. To live for the moment our carpe diem, 
want to receive the gift of Jesus and really hunger for his, ter- his return. Isn't that what we sing? What's, what does it mean to wait for him? What does it mean to watch for him? It means we hunger for him. Our soul waits on the Lord because we can't wait for him to come, not just to pull us out of our bills and our problems of the day, because the greatest thing about him coming is him coming. And if this world really has to suck and stink around you for you to really want him to come back, I don't think he's the big issue. And I'm speaking to myself with that too. Because to you, to him, you're the big issue. You're the thing he wants. His death on the cross was not so you could just go to heaven. It was so you could be with him forever. His resurrection only showed that he had conquered the very death, the one thing that makes everything temporary on earth. My God's eternal. His throne is from eternity to eternity. His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. He has drawn us with an everlasting love. And his word endures forever. And his word says you are mine if you say yes to him. But that's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me? God, I want to pray right now for the salvation of this world around us. And Lord, I know it's very easy to get caught up in the game of this life, shuttled around like cattle from one train car to the next. Get up, do work, eat a meal, go to sleep, start over, rinse, repeat. And like the best we have to look forward to is some form of weird retirement where we stop doing those things to try to figure out to do something more fun. And yet, here we are as Christians living that same kind of life, getting caught under that same overcast with such a small and dismal and and finite view. That's not what you intend. So God, I just pray right now for everyone here who is a Christian that, Lord, we've somehow got suckered into the temporary and we've stopped thinking about heaven. God, deliver us from that, I pray. And get us to that place where today we would say, Oh God, I'm yours. I'm yours. I belong to you. Have me, please. And may we crave your coming for you. Not just to get out of this stuff like a better retirement. But because we get to see you face to face. And as we see in your scripture, we will be like you because we'll see you for as you are. Oh Lord, please, today, minister to us. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, the Bible tells us we have a choice to make. And it tells us here that there will be those who have said yes to Jesus and those who, who haven't. And really, that's all there's going to be in the end. Those whose names are written in the book of life and those whose aren't. And if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died on the cross for your sins, and rose again, just as Scripture promised. Today, He's willing to make you His own. And you'll never have to worry. And from this point on, He will develop a relationship with you, if you let Him. But God is a gentleman, and He doesn't take you by force. That part is your choice. And if you want to make that choice to accept that gift of Jesus, have your name being written in the book of life and that you could today be excited about his coming with me, I ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I'm a sinner and my sin makes me guilty before you. But I believe you paid for my sins on the cross of Jesus Christ, his cross, where all my shame and my guilt was hung upon it. And there he died and paid in full all of my guilt. And just like Scripture promised, he was buried and he rose again on the third day and demands to be my Lord and Savior. If I'm going to accept him, I have to accept him for who he is. So I say yes. Calling Jesus my Lord and my Savior, I say, yes, have me today. If you really want to make me yours and pour forth your love upon me and draw me to you, well, then I say, yes, have me, please. Write my name in your book of life.
please. I'm yours now. Do with me as you wish. But please, come and get me because I'm yours. And today, here in this room, break through the ordinary and make my life extraordinary in you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. Now cement those convictions, I pray. And today, let us live, and from this point on, in the ardent expectation that at any breath you could come. And whether that's simply to manifest among us in some way, Lord, to to glorify yourself and bring others to salvation, or whether that be completely and entirely, physically, as you come back, as lightning is seen on both sides of heaven. But Lord, let us crave your presence and hunger for your return and live every breath in anticipation of that. We pray in Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.